If you have your Bibles with you, you can take them and turn to the book of Amos. The book of Amos, as we continue our series through uh, the series, we're titling the book of the 12, and that's simply because uh, the Jews would have uh, had all of these 12, what we refer to as minor prophets, they would have been in a collection called the 12, or the book of the 12, of course, which is part of the larger canon of scripture, Uh, and so we're calling this the book of the 12, and today we're going to land in the book of Amos. So take your Bibles, turn to the book of Amos. Now what do we know about this prophet? Well, we, if you read in chapter 1, verse 1, it says the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds, or some of your translations may, sheep breeders, of Tekoa. Which he, uh, this is which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now if you remember when we read through Hosea, Hosea also prophesied during this time. So Hosea and Amos would have been prophesying at the same time. They most likely would have known each other. Uh, two years, and this says two years before the earthquake. And this is something that Zechariah, who wrote at a later time, refers back to uh, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. Um, and so it was obviously some sort of massive earth- earthquake enough to even circle back around. But we'll talk about that when we get to the prophecy of Zechariah. So Amos, in this book in the Minor Prophets, remember we, the word minor is not used to, to, to talk about that it's unimportant. The term minor is used to talk about the brevity of the book, the shortness of the books, as opposed to Isaiah, Jeremiah, which are longer prophecies. So when you hear the word minor, don't think of it as unimportant. Think of it as uh, shorter in length. So he's prophesying with Hosea around 760. He was a sheep herder or a sheep breeder. We learn from chapter 7, verse 14, he was also a cultivator of sycamore fig trees. So this is kind of your your farmer, rustic, hands-on, blue-collar sort of worker. That's who this guy is. And he was called by God to prophesy to the northern kingdom. Now remember, during this time, there was a split in the kingdom of Israel. Ten tribes of the north are called uh, Israel, or the northern kingdom, and then two tribes of the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah. Now what is the book of Amos about? And to maybe, maybe to uh, help us understand this, I want to share with you an illustration. Uh, just the other day, it was uh, Friday uh, morning, uh, me and, and several guys went to load up the piano, and some guys met us here to unload it. And thanks, uh, just thank you to those who help us uh, get it here. And and uh, and uh, while we were there, though, as we were waiting to figure out where the piano was, there were a couple of young girls, not probably older, six, seven, eight, nine years old in there. They were kind of running around, kind of sneaking around. After we got the piano loaded onto the, the trailer, uh, Niall Wilson and I came back in to grab... Uh, is it a lid? This top part. That's what, that's what we came in to grab this because we had taken it off. Um, is it a lid? Sure. Okay. It's a lid. Uh, so we came in to, to grab that, to take it out there, to, to load it up. And on, on top of the lid, there was a folded piece of paper with a note. And the note said, to the piano robbers. <laughs> From mystery. And on the inside, it says, sorry, you've been caught. And included with this note was a little Polaroid picture of us pushing the piano through the hallway. I kept it. Well, 
It's not humorous when it comes to the book of Amos, but the book of Amos is God's Polaroid picture of Israel's sin. And as a matter of fact, it's not even a, it's a, it's, it's a whole photo album of sins of Israel. God is, is, is bringing their charge. He's saying, you've been caught. Here are the pictures to prove your sin. And that's what God is doing through this prophet. He's getting very specific about sin. If you remember last week in the book of Joel, we didn't get any specifics on sin. He mentioned drunkenness at the beginning, but that wasn't really in reference necessarily to what they were doing. But God is going to get very specific about the sins being committed. One of the key verses in this book is in chapter 5, verse 24. And you're going to sound familiar to you. It's it's the verse that says, "But But let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's kind of the thing. That's where God wants to get them. Let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Of course, these words, at least, at least in part, were made famous in Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech, which he gave on August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Those very words spoken by him. What, what do those words mean? And what was Amos getting at when he used them? And that's what we're going to find out as we go along through this book. Now this message will be kind of another uh, fire hydrant. Uh, kind of an opening of the fire hydrant sort of message as we go through nine very rich chapters of this prophet. Uh, we're going to cover the whole book like we've been doing every week. And we're going to stop at some places and we're going to move rather quickly over other places. So, so we're going we're gonna to sit at some spots. We're going we're gonna to kind of cover a few spots rather rapidly. Just, um, just be prepared for, for stopping and going as we go through this. Um, and as I was preparing this message... It, made me all the more thankful for my friend and mentor, Warren Wearsby, who left behind such rich commentaries to help me figure out the divisions in this book, um, and why our two outlines are by no means the same. His is way better. You probably want to go check his out. I am definitely indebted to him for uh, helping me see some, some divisions and seeing how to break this book uh, in pieces. But at the end of this message, I hope and pray that God uses the message and the words of this prophet to break down the dam of sin so that righteousness will flow more freely in your life. So let's get into this. Sin will die and righteousness will flow when three things happen. Sin will die and righteousness will flow when, number one, we feel the burden of sin. And that's what God is going to do in these first two chapters. God here, if you look at verse 2 of chapter 1, it says the Lord roars from Zion. It's like he's, he's the lion, and he's going he's gonna to roar out. He's going to roar like a lion, and he's, gonna, he's really going to place the burden of sin on, on eight different nations. Now, if you look, just, just simply to browse, if you look at verse 3, we're going to see this phrase come up again and again. Verse 3, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Uh, verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Verse 9, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. You know, what does that phrase mean? Well, he's not saying that they've committed three sins and now, you know, they've only committed four sins and that's kind of what's going to bring judgment. Really, it's a, it's a Jewish idiom that means that 
It's just, they've piled on. It's sin upon sin upon sin upon sin upon sin upon sin, and the end has come. God's patience had run out. They have fulfilled, they have filled up the measure of their sins, and so that's what that phrase means. Now, Amos is going to start with six Gentile nations. These are nations not a part of Israel. And you can just imagine, as, as Amos has given this prophecy, how the people would have no doubt, they would have cheered as Amos prophesied against these six Gentile pagan nations. But then he would turn to Judah, the southern kingdom, and then ultimately, for, the mo- for most of the book, to Israel. And those messages, as we will see, were not as well received. But God wanted all nations and he wanted all people to feel the burden and the weight of their sin. He roared like a lion. He wanted them to hear loud and clear, but the people weren't listening. The reason why I say feel the burden of sin as God goes through and he, 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 li- he lists sin after sin after sin is because no one turns to God without some understanding of the depth of their sin. Damascus is the first nation he mentions. And very quickly, they were condemned for their violent treatment of the Israelites. Says they are, he's going to be punished, uh, verse 3, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. The kind of the idea there's a whole threshing of a field is just, it was just uh, above and beyond sort of violence. That's what they were going to be punished for. Gaza, these are the Philistines uh, of verse 6. Uh, verse 8 tells us that the remnants of the Philistines, so, the, so Gaza is representing the Philistines here. And it says they are condemned because they are carrying the people of Israel away just to sell them for money. That's in verse 6. Because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And then the next one we get is in verse 9 is Tyre. Notice here what it says about Tyre in verse 9. It says, because they delivered up a people to Edom, so similar to the Philistines, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now this goes back to King David. Tyre made a a long-standing covenant with King David. And it was more than just political, it was actually like a friendship. King David and Tyre had a friendship. There was a common bond there. They had a common concern. Even though Tyre was not a Christian nation, yet they still shared some sort of respect for humanity between the two. But Tyre here, he ends up breaking this covenant, and just like the Philistines, they sold Israel for profit. Verse 11, he goes to Edom. Now, the nation of Edom really perpetuates the long-standing rival between Jacob and Esau. Remember, the Edomites came from Esau. And so it says here, it says, it's because in verse 11, because he pursued his brother with the sword... He cast off all pity, and notice this phrase, and pay attention here, his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So the idea here is just this long rival between Jacob and Esau, from Jacob and Esau fighting, from, remember the Israelites going through the wilderness, and they said, hey, can we pass through your land? The Edomites said, you come through our land, we're going to kill you. All the way till now. They continued to hate. Their anger tore perpetually. They just couldn't stop hating. Be careful if you're perpetually angry. The next nation we get here in verse 13 are the Ammonites. 
Now, these are the descendants of Lot. So, again, related to Israel. And they were, notice here, it's kind of brutal here. It says they ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. It was kind of a, it was kind of enlarge the border, get as much land and stuff at all costs. So they were ruthless and brutal, and they killed women, they killed unborn children to get what they wanted. And then next he comes to Moab at the beginning of chapter 2. And notice here what it says. He says, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. What does that mean? What it means is he went and dug up a grave. And here it says he burned. He burned the king. He disgraced the dead king's body. It brought humiliation on the people. It'd be as, it'd be as if one of America's enemies would go to Arlington Cemetery and start digging up generals, presidents, and so on and start degrading their bodies. Just imagine the horror, the humiliation. And that's what Moab did. Now at this point, Israel and Judah are probably saying, Amos, yeah, go get them, God. You know, show them who's boss. Show these nasty, vile, pagan nations who, how they're going to get it and how they should quit acting like that for their evil and their insincerity. The problem is there's nine, nine chapters in this book, and the bad guys only get one. The other eight chapters are for the good guys. Now, how shocking would it have been when God turns his wrath towards them? How shocking it would have been for these people who said, I, we know God, we believe God, we have all of God's promises, his law, the traditions, the tabernacle, the temple at this point, we have it all. And how shocked would they have been when God turned his wrath towards them? Will you be shocked on the last day when you stand before God? He goes to Judah. This is the southern kingdom in verse 4 of chapter 2. And notice what it says here. He says, I'm not going to revoke. It's the same thing. For three transgressions, four, I'm not going to revoke punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord. They rejected the revealed will of God. Now think about that. Do you and I, you and I don't, think, don't think of closing our ears to God's word as that bad. I mean, the Ammonites were cutting open pregnant women to make sure that there was no chance of babies surviving and the Ammonites surviving, or in, in the people surviving. And here God says, you who have my word and are closing your ear to my word are going to get the exact same wrath. And we, we just find that crazy. We're sitting here with, man, is closing our ears to God's word really that bad? And it's probably because we're so apt to do it and we excuse ourselves for it. We excuse ourselves for being hearers of the word and not doers. But here, God puts them all on the same plane. Paul makes this argument from Romans chapter 1 and 2. We like Romans chapter 1, don't we? Because we use it against America. And it is true of America. God's judgment comes and there's, 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 a, there's a steady digression of sexual perver- perversion as God's judgment is poured out. He actually withdraws himself. We say, man, that's going on in America. And it is. And God's judgment is rightly falling through his, the pulling back of his hand to let sin run rampant. That is a sure sign of God's judgment on a nation. And so in Romans chapter 1, God condemns the rebellious. But you know what happens in Romans chapter 2? 
He condemns the religious. Romans chapter 2 says this, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Really, the whole chapter goes after the religious crowd. We just look at those couple verses to sum it up. God condemns the rebellious in Romans chapter 1, and then he condemns the religious in Romans chapter 2. And after going to Judah, he goes to Israel in chapter 2, verse 6. Now the rest of the book, from chapter 2, verse 6, to the very end, is all about Israel. The focus is completely on the northern kingdom of Israel. God does a couple things here. One, he gets very specific about their sin. Notice here it says in in verse 6, he says, They sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. They turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profane. Right there, it's probably some, referring to some sort of temple prostitution. It says, these people, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in a pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. God opens up the photo album, the depths of their sin, their unrestrained lust. They're take, and it says they're laying on garments taken in a pledge. Well, what's the big deal about that? What they do is they would take a garment uh, from someone who's poor, doesn't have money, as a pledge to do something, and they wouldn't return it. The law in Deuteronomy chapter 24 says those things taken in a pledge have to be returned by sunset. And these people are laying on it, saying, no, it's mine now. They were trampling the heads of the poor. They were selling the righteous for silver. They, there was, it, when, when, uh, when, somebody, when somebody righteous or somebody poor came to the courts and they wanted justice, it was whoever had the most money. That's who won. There was great injustice and immorality going on. And he's going to call out the wicked judges in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 8, a number of times in this book. The judges would take bribes from the rich. They would force the poor into slavery, even at the expense of taking their only only pair of shoes. In verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2, we won't take time to read all of it, but he gets very specific about his salvation. He says, don't you, it was me. It was me. It was I who destroyed the Amorite. I brought you, verse 10, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he reminds them of all the good he has done for them. He graciously rescued them from their enemies on more than one occasion. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He raised up, more than that, he raised up prophets. Notice verse 11. I raised up for you prophets, and I gave you Nazarites. Tell me, Israel, is is it right? Am I right? Am I wrong here? That's the question. He reminds them of three things. Their salvation. And he tells them, hey, I gave you proclamation from the prophets and I gave you demonstration from the Nazarites. If you ever read through the Bible and you're like, these Nazarites, it's like they have no hair, they don't drink wine, they just, they're, what's going on with these people? The Nazarites were examples to the community of what devotion and purity looks like. And so God says, listen, I, I saved you. I gave you the prophets and I gave you my word. And then I gave you this special group of people, you could do it voluntarily. I have, I have people to show you what purity and devotion to God really looks like in the flesh. I gave you examples. I gave you everything you needed. And so then he says, man, look at verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine. I would have broken the vow. 
You commanded the prophets, don't prophesy. You turned away everything. Everything God was saying to the people, they just kept turning it away. And God says there would be no escape. To forsake and to spurn such blessing would bring God's wrath. Now before we move on to the next section, Mark Dever and and the commentary of his on the Old Testament makes, makes a very astute observation about our hearts. Because we often, we often ask questions such as, does God care about what's going on in the world? Think about the tragic accident that leaves, I think, three kids in critical condition at, uh, from Adventureland yesterday after an accident there. Does God really care what's going on in the world? And we ask questions, does God really care what's going on in my life, what's happening to me? Does God care about a cheating spouse and the way I've been sinned against? Does God care about the way I've been sinned against by a lying boss or by the thief that stole my credit card and racked up all sorts of charges? Does God care about that drunk driver that hit me or that hit my son or that hit my wife traveling down the road? Does God care about the bully at school that won't leave me alone? Doesn't he care that they're doing those things? And God does care. And so I want you to hear, what I'm about to say next, my point and what I'm about to say next is not to downplay the real ways in which we're sinned against and the real ways in which God hates the way we're sinned against. There are times when someone sins against us and God hates it. But I want you to consider this. How often, how often do we stop and ask God if he cares about the wrongs we've committed? How about the lies we've told to our spouse? How about the ways we've been impatient towards our kids? What about the ways in which we've been unfair? I mean, there are plenty of times when someone sins against me, if I sit and think about it long enough, I can say, you know what? I'm a lot like that. How thankful, thank, you, thank you, God, for being patient with me. And again, I... I am not saying that any time we're sinned against, whether we're abused, attacked, or taken advantage of, that we sit there and we try to find ways in which we're guilty of the same thing. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But we must feel the true weight of our sin. We must feel the true weight of our own depravity and the sin within us. Because here's the fact. When God sets home the weight and guilt of sin upon your soul, you will have no choice but to flee to Christ and cast it on him. When God sets home the weight and the guilt of your sin upon your soul, you have nowhere to run but the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is waiting, and God is longing for that. And after giving all the people a burden for sin, God gives Amos three sermons. One in chapter four, one in chapter three, one in chapter four, and one in chapter five. And that leads us to the next thing. Sin will die And righteousness will flourish, will flow when we feel the burden of sin. And number two, when we hear God's message about sin. Now, if you notice, chapter three, it starts with hear this word. Chapter four starts with hear this word. And then chapter five starts with hear this word. So he's going to get into, he's going to get into three sermons. Now, chapter three is a sermon to remind them. We've already talked about this a little bit. We're not going to spend long here. A sermon to remind. 
First, it was a reminder of God's grace. In verse 2, I have only known you. Of all the families of the earth, of all the nations I could have chosen, I have only known you. Yet they despise God's calling, and they despise God's grace. And then he reminded them in verses uh, 3 through 8 of chapter 3, of God's gifts. He uses all these phrases, these rhetorical questions. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? So the idea here is, if you're driving down the road, and you look over and you see two people walking together, you're probably not driving the rest of the way home saying, you know, I wonder if they know each other. I wonder if they agreed to meet. I wonder if they're friends. I'm betting they, I bet they hate each other. You know, whenever you see two people walking together, we don't even think about it. We assume they've, they have an agreement. They're, they're friends. They're husband, wife, or father, son, and they're, and they're walking together. And God is saying, listen, our agreement is broken. There's no way we're walking together on this. We've gone in different directions. God says in, in all these things, is, does a bird fall into a snare? If there's no trap. Verse 5, is the trumpet blown? People aren't afraid. In verse 7, he's telling them of these gifts. He says, listen, the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants. Like God has spoken. He's saying, listen, I'm not hiding anything from you. I'm telling you everything you need to know. The lion has roared, verse 8. There's the lion reference again. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And then in the rest of the chapter, in verses 9 through 15, God reminds them of their guilt. But there's a second sermon, and that's in chapter 4. Now here, this is, if chapter 3 is a sermon to remind, God kind of ramps up the intensity of the sermon in chapter 4, and he really ramps it up in chapter 5. But in chapter 4, he ramps up a little bit, and it's a sermon to expose. He's going to expose them. And the first thing he exposes is their luxury. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows... Of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Now, if I were to call the women cows, I'd be looking for a new job. Here, this old, rustic farmer is addressing the, addressing the women of the nation. And he says, listen up, you cows of Bashan. Why, why did he say that? Well, the, the, the cows in Bashan were known, he wasn't saying they were, they were fat or overweight. That's not why he's saying it. What he's saying is they were high-privileged and well-fed. It was the idea here, they were, they were women of luxury. They were women that had, didn't have a care in the world. And so when he said this, the people would have been shocked, would have fired him, but he got hired by God, so you can't fire that guy. Uh, and so, they, they, so he says these things, and he's calling out their luxury. Now, if you looked up luxury in the dictionary, you would find it defined something like this, and this is an abbreviated form, but it's, some, it's, it's the free indulgence in or enjoyment of Pleasures that go beyond what is necessary for reasonable well-being. Okay, so the free indulgence or enjoyment of pleasures that go beyond what is necessary for reasonable well-being. So it's, it's, it's to have pleasures that go above and beyond what is necessary for life. It's to have an abundance of money and possessions and comfort. That's the idea here. 
And listen, I'm not, it's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin, a sin to have comfort. It's not a sin to have money or to be rich. What Amos is exposing in their luxury is their self-centeredness. A quote from Warren Wearsby says, Luxury doesn't mean owning abundant possessions so much as allowing possessions to own us. And so Amos, as he is addressing these well-fed, well-to-do, well-off, well-cared-for women, he's exposing the fact that their possessions owned them. That's why he says that he oppresses the poor. And furthermore, it's, it's kind of the idea is these women who sit in a robe all day, they drink wine, and they boss around their husbands. That's what it says. So you say to your husbands, bring me, you know, bring me, give me, give me what I want, give me what I want, give me what I want. The world revolved around them, and they didn't care what else was going, what was going on around them. They didn't care how their actions or how they, were, how they got their money, how they got their comfort, whatever it meant for them to be comfortable, they were going to do it. And so the application is for we, men included, we must be cautious about living a life or fantasizing about a life where we have everything we want. Because when toys and treasures saturate our lives, it's very easy just to say, well, I've got everything I need. And that's the parable Jesus gave. Remember in Luke chapter 12, he says, there's this guy, he says, I've got everything I need. I build bigger barns. I've got all this stuff. Now it's time just to sit back, relax, and enjoy my stuff. And remember what happened next after he said, it's time for me to eat, drink, be merry, and be happy. It's in Luke chapter 12 where he says, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and notice this word, these words, is not rich toward God. Are you rich towards God? As you look at your heart, are you rich towards God? And you say, well, how do I know? Glad you asked. Because true riches is found in Jesus Christ. Matthew 13, 44 says, Jesus says, listen, the kingdom of heaven is like finding a treasure hidden in a field. And the man finds it. And so he covers up the treasure because he doesn't want anybody to take it. And he goes and it says with joy. He's like, I'm getting rid of everything I have because I've found the greatest treasure in the world. That's what it means to be rich in God. It means that you found Christ. It means that Christ, more than anything else, is of infinite value and worth and is your infinite treasure. And that's what leads to this question. A question that is a matter of life and death. If true riches is measured by your possession of and love for Christ, how rich are you? If true riches is measured by your possession of and your love for Christ, how rich are you? He exposes their luxury. And we're going to sit on the, sit on the next few verses here in verse 4 and 5, because the next thing, before we move on rather quickly after that, but the next thing he addresses is their hypocrisy. Notice what it says in verse 4. He says, come to Bethel and sin. Bethel means house of God. It's a place of worship. To Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. And proclaim a free will offering. Publish them. Let everybody know. 
says, for you love to do it, O people of Israel. What God is doing here, he is not praising them. He is exposing their hypocrisy. They were living in selfish, selfish luxury. They were trampling the poor. They were indulging in unrestrained lust. They were murdering, cheating, lying. But hey, they did all the religious things. They did all the things God said to do in the law. I mean, they were good, right? They showed up to church on Sunday. They dressed nice for it, too. They sang in the choir. They were at prayer meeting. They were at Sunday school. They read their Bible that morning. They prayed before every meal. They even gave their money to the church, to the temple, this free will offering. They were doing all these things. They came together to do religion for religion's sake. And God wanted nothing to do with it. And I can say to you, if you're in here and you're just doing religious stuff and you're here just for religious sake, God wants nothing to do with it. He wants your heart. And that's what he wanted Israel to know. I want your heart. I want a relationship with you. And we even have a New Testament example of this very thing in 1 Corinthians 11. It's actually uh, surrounding the Lord's Supper, which we'll partake of here in a few minutes. Where Paul actually says, he says, this is verse 17 and 18. He says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. He told a church, you guys come to church as a church. And it's actually, there's no good coming out of it. As a matter of fact, every Sunday gets worse. Israel did all the sacrifices, all the tithes, all the religious attendance. And guess what? It says they even loved it. They loved to tell people about their church activity and all the things they do. And God hated it. They were living in blatant hypocrisy and had no relationship with him. God wants our hearts. Christianity is not church attendance. Christianity is not baptism. Christianity is not the Lord's Supper. Christianity is not attending church. Christianity is not singing with the congregation. Christianity is not giving money to the church. Christianity is not about singing in the choir. Christianity is not dressing nice on Sundays. Christianity is Christianity. It's Christianity. And to love religious meetings, but to have no love for Christ is to be lost. Hear God's message about sin. Hear and heed God's message about hypocrisy. In verses 6 through 13, we won't spend long here, but the next thing he does, he exposes their stupidity. And he just kind of goes through. He's like, what else could I do? Verse 6, 7, 8, he just tells about all these things I did. I gave you famine, a drought, gardens, war, disease, death, all this stuff. I kept sending you very bad things to try to avoid the ultimate judgment. God was being merciful. I've given you these smaller judgments, but you're just not getting it. And so the ultimate judgment was coming. And then the final sermon is in chapter 5 and 6. And it's a sermon of lamentation. Notice verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. He says, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation. So this is where things get real serious. This is where things get ramped up even a little bit more. And he calls them to, we see this, uh, look at uh, verse 4 and even verse 6. It says, seek the Lord and live. And if you flip over uh, to verse 14, it says, seek good and not evil. He's telling them, hey, you need to seek the Lord. God is offering you salvation. Yet they hated who God was. 
And in verse 10, notice this, uh, of, of chapter 5, it says, it says they hated, hated people telling them they were doing wrong. It says they hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Like, don't tell me I'm sinning. Don't tell me I'm doing wrong. Don't tell me God hates, you know, just religious stuff just for the sake of religious stuff. They hated the word of God. They didn't want to be told what God had to say. So he calls them to seek good, and he calls them in verses, uh, in chapter 5, verse 18, through the end of chapter 6, he calls them to repent. If you notice chapter 5, verse 18, then notice chapter 6, verse 1, and 6, verse 4, it's, it starts with the word woe. He gives three woe statements. Chapter 5, verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It's like they were like looking forward to it. Like can't wait till God gets here. It's going to be great. He's going to take out the Gentile nations. All these pagan people are going to be gone. I can't wait for God to get here. And he's like, I would, not, I would not be so rejoicing over the day of the Lord because when God comes, he's coming to you and he's coming against you. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and feel secure. Like they're like, hey, we're good. Life is good. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. Verse 4 of chapter 6, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. Again, it's kind of this rich, the, going back to this rich idea. Like laying on beds of ivory, they stretch themselves out on their couches. They just go pick out a lamb and have it whenever they want or a cow. You know, just got, they got a, they got a full, full cow they can slaughter and eat whatever they want, whenever they want. They sing idle songs. They invent songs in verse 5. Man, God's saying woe to you. Woe is one of the most severe words used that is calling down the very judgment of God on people. And he's saying, woe to you who are doing this. May God's judgment and God's wrath come down on this. We must hear and heed God's message about sin. Sin will usher in the great sadness and loss. You may recall, you may recall this popular quote. I think it's attributed to K. Arthur, but many people have said it. Sin will take you farther than you ever expected to go. It will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever, ever expected to pay. We must hear and heed God's message about sin. Sin will die and righteousness will flow. Thirdly, not only when we feel the burden of sin... Not only when we hear God's message about sin, but we see where sin will take us. And that's in chapter 7, 8, and 9. So if you look, uh, good, there's, five, there's five visions in chapter 7, 8, and 9. It starts in chapter 7, verse 1. There's one in chapter 7, verse 4. There's one in chapter 7, verse 7. There's one in chapter 8, verse 1, and chapter 9, verse 1. I know I said that fast, but if you just look for the words, this is what the God showed me, they're all in there. There's five visions, and we're not going to go over them. You have to read them on their own. But nonetheless, they were given to help them see their crookedness and their perversity, and to help them see that all this crookedness and all this perversity could only lead to one place, and that was God's judgment. God was trying to unmask their sin. He's trying to say, listen, see, you need to see with your eyes. You need to see your sin. You need to see what's going on. You need to see sin for what it really is. Do you want that in your life? Do you want that in your life? Do you want God to really unmask your sin? We should all be praying for that. And God, help me see my sin for what it really is. Do you ever pray that God would help you with that? I encourage you to do so. Thomas Brooks, the 
prolific Puritan writer from the 1600s. He wrote a book. It's one of my favorite Puritan books. I encourage you to read it. It's wordy, and uh, it's got a lot to it, but it's, it's, it's good for your soul. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And one remedy he gives to killing sin is to, is to see sin now with the same eyes we will see it with uh, when we get to heaven. And here's what he says. This is a quote, a small section from his book. He says, Ah, souls, when you shall lie upon a dying bed and you stand before a judgment seat, sin shall be unmasked. Its dress and robes shall be taken off. And then it shall appear more vile, filthy, and terrible than hell itself. Then that which formerly appeared most sweet will appear most bitter. And that which appeared most beautiful will appear most ugly. And that which appeared most delightful will then appear most dreadful to the soul. Ah, the shame, the pain, the gall, the bitterness, the horror, the hell that the sight of sin, when its dress is taken off, will raise in poor souls. Pray for God to help you see what sin is and to help you see where it's taken you. Beg God to raise the hell of sin in your heart now so you won't experience hell for it later. Because God provided a way of escape from that hell. It's through Jesus Christ. We have these five visions in chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. We have a little kind of a narrative here where the prophet's told to quit prophesying but he's an immovable prophet. Amos's ministry, they, they come to Amos and says, hey, Amos is conspiring against the king. This priest is talking to Amos. And he's like, Amos, verse 12, go away. Go to Judah. Eat bread there. Prophesy there. But don't, don't come to Bethel. Don't come to the king's sanctuary. It's the temple of the king. Is it the king's sanctuary? Is it the temple of his kingdom? No, it's God's. Notice what, it's chapter 14. Here's what this, here's what this uh, the shepherd says. He's like, hey, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman. I was a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go and prophesy to my people. Now, therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Here's what the Lord says to you. Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Immovable prophet. Unafraid. This shepherd. This tree tree cultivator. Unafraid. To follow God's voice. The thunder of heaven is compared to this croak of a frog. And God thundered from heaven and called Amos into the ministry and the little croak from a frog of a priest isn't going to do nothing to deter him. Amos may not have had the wealth, the fame, and the fortune on his side, but he had the word of God. Maybe you're reminded of Acts chapter 5, the the, the apostles in the same boat. They didn't have the prestige. They didn't have the education. They didn't have the wealth. But they had God and his word and that gave them an upper, upper hand. Psalm 119 talks about your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers. One immovable prophet. Chapter 9, at the very end, chapter 11 through 15. 
Here in these chapters, he gives five dramatic visions to help us see sin for what it really is and where it's moving. We have this example of one immovable prophet, and then we have one glorious salvation. Now, the book ends how almost every book in the Minor Prophets ends. A promise of salvation. Notice here in verse 11, it says, In that day I will raise up the booth, literally a hut, of David. You know, once David's kingdom was beautiful, this great temple or, uh, that, that Solomon had built, and now it's just this little hut, a little broken down hut. God's saying, I'm going to restore it. God promises restoration because sin will either lead you to God's judgment or it will lead you to the cross where you repent of your sins, you confess your sins, you repent of your sins, and you place your faith in Jesus. At the cross, sins and judgment for you can be removed through the sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the hope we have. Sin will die. And righteous will begin to flow, although not perfectly in this life, and there'll still be sprouts of sin here and there, but sin will die more and more. Righteousness will flow more and more when we feel the burden of our sin. When we hear and heed God's message about sin, and when we see where sin will take us. Is it to the cross for you? We're going to close in prayer, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And as I pray, we'll have the guys come up. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your glorious word. And Lord, it may be a a heavier book on your judgment and your identification of sin being poured out. Lord, that's just what we need when we come to this table. To remember that this Lord's Supper, although it might seem like kind of a funny thing we do, and it might, some people in here, maybe, what's going on with this thing? But this is a memorial. This is where we come and we rejoice and we see with new eyes Jesus crucified for us. In that whole photo album of our own sin, we rejoice today that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose victoriously from the dead. And so, Lord, just, uh, just impart your special grace uh, as we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.